0: You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello everyone, Today, we're going to be discussing medieval measurement, um, specifically beginning with a history of measurement generally from ancient Egypt, even to the present day, and then we'll delve into a few of the really interesting topics that come out of questions around how measurement was used in the medieval period. We're following up on our last episode on time and books of hours with an episode on measurement and medieval manuscripts, and also on the spiritual quality of measurement for medieval people. I could here dive into a variety of topics from architecture and architectural diagrams, to medieval maps, farmland, and political boundaries, to subjects related to health and measurement. But all these subjects will have to wait. Today, after considering time and sacred ritual last week, and on the heels of our episode on amulets and talismans, we will focus on the medieval history of measurement, and then explore one of the most commonly reproduced and measured late medieval sacred images. That is, the side wound of Christ. So. The earliest known measurement systems were created sometime between 4,000 and 3,000 BCE among the ancient people of Egypt, Mesopotamia, and the Indus Valley, perhaps also in Iran as well. Early Babylonian and Egyptian records and the Hebrew Bible indicate that length was first measured by the forearm, hand, or finger, and that time was measured by the periods of the sun, moon, and other heavenly bodies, as we discussed last episode. When it was necessary to compare the capacities of containers such as gourds or clay or metal vessels, they were filled with plant seeds, which were counted to measure their volume. The Egyptian cubit is generally recognized as having been the most ubiquitous standard of linear measurement in the ancient world. Developed around 3000 BCE, it was based on the length of the arm, from the elbow to the extended fingertips, and was standardized by a royal master cubit of black granite, against which all the cubit sticks or rules in use in Egypt were measured at regular intervals. I'll touch on this idea of a master unit of measure shortly. So when means for weighing were invented, again, seeds and stones served as standards. For instance, the carrot, which is still used today as a unit for gems, was derived from the carob seed, Although the concept of weights and measures today includes such factors as temperature, luminosity, pressure, and electric current, it once consisted of only four basic measurements. Mass or weight, distance or length, area, and volume. Basic to the whole entire idea of weights and measures are the concepts of uniformity, units, and standards. Uniformity, the essence of any system of weights and measures, requires accurate, reliable standards of mass and length, and also agreed-on units. A unit is the name of a quantity, such as, for example, a kilogram or a pound. A standard is the physical embodiment of a unit, such as, for example, the platinum-iridium cylinder that's kept by the International Bureau of Weights and Measures at Paris as the standard kilogram. So thinking back to that master cubit of ancient Egypt made out of black granite, we can see that this idea of a standard or a physical embodiment goes all the way back to the beginning of measurement concepts. A unit is an arbitrary amount of material. Thus, there must be an original measure to measure the unit against, a master unit. Ancient measurement used the body, but also measured by the body with arms and feet and fingers often being used as reference material. Medieval Europe inherited the ancient Roman system, with its Greek, Babylonian, and Egyptian roots. It soon proliferated through daily use and language variations into a great number of national and regional variants, with elements borrowed from, for example, the Celtic... Uh, Germanic, Scandinavian, and Arabic influences, and there's also original contributions growing out of the needs of medieval life at this time, adding to the great diversity of different units of measurement. This caused a huge problem across medieval Europe, as there was no standard of measure. A determined effort by the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne and many other medieval kings to impose uniformity at the beginning of the 9th century was in vain. The great trade fairs, such as those in Champagne during the 12th and 13th centuries, enforced rigid uniformity on merchants of all nationalities within the fairgrounds and had some effect on standardizing differences among regions, but the variations remained. A good example is the L, a universal measure for wool cloth, the great trading staple of the Middle Ages. The L of Champagne, measures two feet and six inches, measured against an iron standard in the hands of the keeper of the fair, and was accepted by the other great cloth manufacturing cities of Northwestern Europe, even though their bolts varied in length. In several other parts of Europe, the L itself varied, however there were hundreds of thousands of examples among measuring units throughout Europe. Measurement in the United States and the UK still follows the altered medieval model of measurement using feet and inches, although the other national systems that emerged in the medieval period were generally reformed and reorganized over the centuries and ultimately replaced by the metric system. By the time of the Magna Carta in 1215, abuses of weights and measures were so common that a clause was inserted in the charter to correct those on grain and wine, demanding a common measure for both. A few years later, a royal ordinance entitled SIs of Weights and Measures defined a broad list of units and standards so successfully that it remained in force for several centuries thereafter. A standard yard, the iron yard of our lord the king, as it was known, was prescribed for the realm, divided into the traditional three feet, each of 12 inches. So what of sacred measurement in the medieval period? What made a measurement sacred? Of course, measurement was an important sacred tool in a variety of sacred contexts, from suggesting how to reproduce sacred spaces, to allowing for virtual pilgrimage. For example, There were pilgrimage maps that used increments of time, rather than mileage, to communicate the distance for a pilgrim who could not undertake a journey such as a monk or a nun. Scale representations of certain holy items, people, and places further supplemented virtual pilgrims' imaginative tools that they had available. These scale representations, which are known as metric relics, include manuscript illustrations of the wound of Christ's side and the implements of Christ's torture, which collectively are known as the Arma Christi. Since no record of consecration exists, it is possible that the apotropaic powers of metric relics were automatically assumed through the replication of sacred measurements. Reproduction and measurement are intimately tied and took on a sacred role with metric relics, which were seen as a translation of sacred measures. Now, we'll close this episode today with an examination of one particularly special bodily metric relic, the side wound of Christ. Over the years, we've had quite a few fascinating manuscripts and miniatures at Les with such wound measures, that is, with an image of the side wound of Christ depicted to scale, as it were. Of course, the perfect measure of the wound, the master unit of its measure, was Christ's real wound. However, The relic of the lance could perhaps substitute for this perfect measure and other items such as relics in Constantinople were also used in order to convey the actual exact size of Christ's wound, as I'll discuss shortly. Readers would touch manuscript representations of Christ's side wound the cult of the side wound was widespread throughout the early church, but later was superseded by Renaissance devotion to the Sacred Heart, which developed out of this devotion to the wounds and the humanity of Christ. Although Sacred Heart devotion became most popular in the 17th century, it can be seen as early as the 13th, when, for example, Mechthild of Hefta became an ardent promoter of Jesus' heart after it was the subject of many of her visions. Early devotions located the wound in Christ's side. It was only from about the 12th century forward that it was understood at all that Christ's heart had been pierced. Medieval depictions of the wound usually have the opening on the right side of Christ's body. If the wound had pierced Christ's heart, anatomically, it should be on the left side. But because the right side traditionally houses goodness in Christian teaching, it was usually located on that side there. Christ's heart became the focus of mystic union. The side wound, more specifically, became a nuptial bedchamber and a refuge offering protection, nourishment, and cleansing. Womb-like, it also suggested a place of rebirth, as I will return to shortly. Devotional literature often encouraged the faithful to taste, touch, suck, kiss, and enter into Christ's side wound. Further inviting bodily associations, the material of manuscripts itself was bodily. Parchment pages were made from animal skin and was often viewed as having residual energy from the life lived by that animal and just like all things, also as containing a divine essence. Thus, parchment held its own power, activated by the reader's touch, and lent to any image on its surface. Animal skin could become the medium for divine connection, for religious experience, and for performing piety. Images of Christ, serving as a proxy for him, allowed the reader physical interaction with his body, Images of Christ's side wound facilitated this intense, affective response. These textile exchanges have left the images in some texts scratched, rubbed, and scarred from excessive handling. Portable images and books enabled people to experience divine interactions in the context of personal, intimate, devotional space repeated touching, created immediate access for these individuals, and interaction between an object and this person, this devotee, resulted in a kind of devotional performance. Images of the side wound were particularly suited for encouraging this kind of physical interaction. A manuscript previously in our inventory, BOH 414, is a Netherlandish prayer book that incorporates an image pasted to the inside cover depicting the measured side wound of Christ surrounded by the hand and foot wounds. There are fewer than 10 manuscripts from the Low Countries that contain such an image. So this is an extraordinary survival. An Augustinian nun or canoness in the Flemish province of Brabant probably owned and used the manuscript. This is a single-leaf painting that is glued in to the front cover, and it bears an exceedingly curious design. The image that depicts the measured side wound of Christ surrounded by those hand and foot wounds, and this image has been trimmed. The outside of the outermost frame measures 84 by 103 millimeters. The text around this frame indicates the subject. It reads, quote, this is the length and width of the side wounds of Christ." End quote. The large lozenge shape at the center of the design, therefore, represents this measured wound in Christ's side. The image is visually striking, arresting even. The diamond or lozenge shape contains three layers with an outer zone of dark red that appears to have been rubbed and dirtied and possibly even had purple or blue once painted over it a middle, sharply delineated zone of fleshy pink, and then finally a central diamond painted black with floating stylized drops of blood. Near the end of the 15th century, votaries increasingly wanted to collect authentic experience, including experience that could be measured, tallied, and considered objective, since the real experience they sought, participating in Christ's passion, was one and a half millennia out of reach. So one way that they did this, that they sought to have this objective experience was by collecting what I've called metric relics like this. Metric relics included the measurement of Jesus, the lengths of his body, his cross and his wounds. Such details allowed devotees or votaries as I've just called them, to envision the passion with increased particularity, increased attention to detail, and a sense of objective reality that was measurable. Furthermore, women in convents who received really no formal training as artists could produce such leaves, like this one, in our present manuscript. Many of these nuns and canonesses could write and even spent part of their days copying manuscripts, but they often avoided representing the human figure. So, while some attempted simple drawings of saints, others specialized in making images based on shapes they could produce with a ruler and compass, creating abstracted designs in their manuscripts. Visual reminders can also be directly useful for salvation. The statement, quote, this is the length and width of the side wounds of Christ from our manuscript highlights the tradition of replicating the measurements and protection of the viewer since it was an exact reproduction. The desire for true measurement explains why so many side wound images appear disproportionately large in comparison to other images on a page or in a manuscript. This was done not only to show its prominence, but also in an attempt to depict the side wound to scale. Another unusual former Dutch Book of Hours, BOH 719, contained an entirely different image of the wound of Christ. On folio 32, we see two drawings. First, there is a realistic, real-size nail that is 17 centimeters in length on the page, representing the nail that was used to nail Christ to the cross. The other drawing is a schematic, lozenge-shaped representation of the measurements of the side wound. However, this lozenge-shaped wound is very different from the stepped or three-tiered format that we see in BOH 414. This drawing is filled up with an explanation written in red, reading, quote, This is the length and width of the size of the side wound of Christ the Son, which God showed to a cleric. Whoever venerates it daily with a devout heart will be free of deadly sins that day and will earn an indulgence of daily sins. Amen." End quote. This wound is surrounded by shimmering medallions and crosses connected by red pen scroll to the nail, but otherwise it sits lonely and isolated on the empty page. Finally, the measure of the side wound was an invitation to spiritual empathy and bodily interaction, but it was also a protective device. A loose bifolio from our text manuscripts, T.M. 15, contains such a protective image. The text states that this measure was taken from a, quote, cross in Constantinople, end quote, which is the famous reliquary of the Arma Christi kept in the treasury of Hagia Sophia. Its measurements were thought to duplicate measurements taken of Christ's body in Jerusalem, Multiplying by 15 gives the length of the body of Christ as 5 feet 3 inches, or 1 meter and 57 centimeters. This measure was frequently included in texts related to childbirth. The horizontal, almond-shaped side wound is also life-size, and it became a metaphor for marriage or union, an entrance pierced by the spear to uncover the bedchamber of the heart, a place of rest and safety. It was directly associated with childbirth, as was the measure of Christ's body, because the church was thought to have been born from the side wound of Christ at the time of his death, just as Eve was born from the side of Adam in Christian teachings. Its striking visual similarity to vaginal imagery undoubtedly encouraged its frequent inclusion as an illustration accompanying texts used during childbirth, One of the earliest images of the measure of the side wound, which was made and painted around the year 1320, states that the wound will help a woman in childbirth. Folio two Verso, the reverse of our wound image, reads, quote, This is the measure of the holy side wound of our Lord that was brought to the Emperor of Germany from Constantinople in a golden shrine or reliquary so that he might never be harmed in battle. It is said that he or she that is born under the protection of this measure, or that wears it on his or her body, that person will not die of a sudden death, nor be harmed by fire, water, storm, arrow, spear, knife, sword, nor by any enemy. If a woman wears this measure during labor, she will give birth without complications. This is all approved. Also, every man in battle, if he says the following prayer, or carries this measure on him and does not swear, the side wound will protect him from his enemies, and he shall not die from a bad death." So, medieval people measured bodies, measured by their bodies, or perhaps I should say, with their bodies, and reproduced bodily measurement. The use of the body as a tool, as a vehicle for understanding the world, greatly influenced the development of individual spirituality in the later Middle Ages. Affective piety consisted of an emotional devotion to the humanity of Jesus. Individuals devoted themselves to meditation on the body of Christ, on the size, shape, and nature of his wounds and his pain. The image of the wound of Christ participated in such affective piety practices. It was bodily, but also abstract. Taking the form of a lozenge or a vaginal almond shape, the wound is always presented floating on the page, removed from the body, and thus literally objectified. But being made into an object, the wound became a site of meditation and of measurement. Devoted individuals who owned books reproducing and replicating this image would measure the wound with their own bodies, forming a direct bond with Christ through the physical, somatic knowledge of its size and shape. So that's all for today. Our podcast continues to expand, and it would be really helpful to all of us if you could subscribe and rate this podcast in your podcasting app. You can access the podcast through any app, including Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, and to subscribe, you just need to click the plus sign icon at the top of your podcast player. We would also love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. Do you know something about historical measurement, affective piety, or metrical relics, let us know. You can find out more about the manuscripts I just discussed on our website, uh, both textmanuscripts.com and lesameneur.com, and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at lesameneur. Thanks for listening.